0: Yeah, and one of the things that Randy and I had actually talked about when we were realizing the magnitude of this and all these were coming in, that it was almost like a very localized catastrophic earthquake. One of those things that you plan for, but, you know, you seldom in this field get to kind of deal with all of those (laughs) impacts.
1: Welcome to Ian Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe, and this week we are talking about the Thomas Fire, and it's the largest wildland fire in California's history, and uh, today we have with us two emergency managers from the California Office of Emergency Services, so Cal OES, and talking about the uh, the Thomas Fire, and also the uh, Montecito uh, mudslides that occurred just shortly after uh, after that we're gonna be talking a lot of a couple different topics in there about the response about messaging uh, things like this I think you guys are gonna really enjoy the show but before we get into the show yes I can now officially announce that we have a new platform with Ian weekly it's called forums.ian this is what I've been really 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 chomping at the bit to tell you guys about it's really exciting the uh, forums.ianweekly.com and uh, there you can go in and there's forums over there obviously there's groups you guys can create it's a place where we can really have a working emergency management community from across the globe where we can really talk to each other and interact with each other and learn from each other about what we're doing in other parts of emergency in the emergency management world this is where the blog is going to live, and our news, uh, things like this, are going to be on at the forums.emweekly.com. Also, we have a new podcast as well called EM Student, and the EM Student uh, portion of this, the important part about it, is it's going to be smaller, shorter podcast, just about learning emergency management um, at the at the university level, uh, at the community college level, you know, and also anybody who's interested in just learning about emergency management uh, is what really EM students about. And here we're going to be bringing in professors uh, from around the the world of emergency management to talk about what they expect, uh, what they're looking for in emergency management, some of the trends that are happening, some of the studies that are going on, and even just some simple stuff like, hey, how to do your resume properly and how how to proper how to carry yourself in an interview, you know, networking in that way and and how that works for you. That's what EM student's really all about. And so I'm excited to have that, that podcast going out as, as well. And uh, check it out. I mean, you know, yes, it says called EM student. However, like anything else, everybody can take a listen to it. Let me know what's going on there. And if you guys have any topics that you think students want to hear, or if you're a student yourself and you want to hear about something again, go to ask Todd and and, and put that out there and we will uh, find the information for you and we'll discuss it and put it out there for everybody to learn from and that's what it's about growing this community EM student is the beginning for the students that uh, really need to have our help and as mentors and as uh, as practitioners in emergency management to help them through that process to become proficient emergency manager professionals so i'm excited about EM student i'm excited about forums.emweekly.com and please check it out and let us know what you think i'm always you know open to uh, to hear what you guys have to say and uh, and please do and and always reach out to us Also, you know, there's ways you can do this by joining us at Facebook, the Facebook group, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And uh, those are some really good ways to communicate with us as well as the uh, Ask Todd function on the emweekly.com. So don't forget to check out forums.emweekly.com, check out the EM Student Podcast, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from you guys. So let's get into the interview. All right, so today um, we're interviewing a couple of the... People who responded up to the well, Northern California and Central California wildfires this year. It's been a crazy California fire season. And the Thomas Fire, which was the largest fire in California's history. And uh, Jenny and Randy were both on that fire. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves and get into what they did. So Jenny, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved into the emergency management field.
0: My name is Jenny Novak, and I am currently an emergency services coordinator with Cal OES. I've been doing that for about a year now. Prior to that, I worked at the university level at Cal State Northridge in emergency management there. I've also spent some time with um, a couple of cities, and I actually got into this field about 10 years ago because I was really interested in natural disasters, and when I had to pick a project in school to have my senior capstone, I chose to study earthquake and tsunami preparedness in Humboldt County, and that is kind of what got me toward an emergency management trajectory. So it's been a really interesting ride, and I'm happy to be here today at Cal OES.
1: Randy, why don't you tell me a little bit about Again, and if if you guys remember, we uh, interviewed Randy when he was over at Cal State LA about the college stuff. But now he moved on to Cal OES, and we'll we'll get his background again since if you didn't check out that uh, that podcast.
2: Hi, hey everybody. I'm Randy Steiner. I am a Deputy Regional Administrator for the Southern Region for Cal OES. I've been in emergency management now for about 18 years. As Todd mentioned, I uh, came from uh, Cal State Los Angeles, uh, where I was the emergency manager for about two years. And before then, I've worked in uh, water emergency management, as well as was the uh, emergency services coordinator for the County of Orange Environmental Health Department as well. And I've been doing this now for about 18 18 years, have had some background in nuclear emergency response with the San Onofre Nuclear Emer- or nuclear Generating Station, and, um, you know, been doing that kind of work ever since. Came here to Cal OES and have just been working fires pretty much ever since.
1: So, Randy, I, w- I want to start with you because I love the background on the fact that you started Cal OES pretty much like the day the fires broke out, and I just <laughs> And I remember you he, uh, he saying, hey, you know, I thought I was going to come in and be able to slide in and have a couple of weeks where I can kind of get my hands around things. The next thing you know, you're deployed. So why don't we start with that story? Because I think it's outstanding. And people can really relate to it.
2: Yeah, it was interesting because when, when I left, uh. uh Cal State LA I took the weekend off and I, I took the next Monday off and I remember going out early in the morning and there was smoke going over our neighborhood because the Canyon 2 fire had just started so the next day I walked into uh, the Southern Rioc here uh, to start my new job and was immediately directed into the Rioc, which was activated for the fires and ended up doing that for the entire week. Uh, I spent some time as the uh, React director, the deputy React director. Then over the weekend, I ended up going to the local assistance center that we had set up for the fire. After that, I, I started to do some training, went to a training for two days when they told me I needed to redeploy and go up to Mendocino County. And I ended up spending about a month and a half there. Very kind of an interesting story. Went up there to be the division supervisor in Mendocino County. I went up to uh, Mendocino County to be a division supervisor, and was there for about a month and a half. And the last day of my deployment, some friends of mine we decided to go out and have some dinner. And I remember on our way out, uh, the door pretty much to go out there. I looked at my uh, my phone, and there was an alert that there was a fifty acre brush fire in Ventura County, which was not untypical. By the time we got to dinner, I looked at my phone again, and that had become a 2,800-acre brush fire. And at that point in time, I realized that I probably wasn't going to actually be demobilizing. Driving down, back down to Southern California from Mendocino County, I uh, remember passing probably a hundred or so type three engines that were all heading down to Ventura to fight this fire, which at that, by that point had, you know, burned all the way to the ocean that the, the Thomas fire, I mean, it was such a, a rapidly moving fire. So back down to Southern Reoc, I spent two days down here with in the, in the RioC which was activated and then got mobilized up to Ventura County to uh, work the, uh, the recovery for the Thomas fire. And I've just come back off of that. So I'm finally going to be able to do my job as a deputy regional administrator, God willing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, for those of you that are students
1: and listening to the podcast, try to figure out what you actually do as a emergency manager. These are one of those things where you go, yep, I'm gonna not going to go home for a while. So have your bags packed and ready to go. So so Jenny, let's. what's your story as far as now? Again, Jenny's pretty new to the state and it's trial by fire, literally. Right. So what happened with you and you get in your feet wet here and then now you got to the fires.
0: Well, yeah. So my first six months or so here were, were fairly uneventful. I remember being like, I came here to be in response and there's not really anything happening. And I felt like I wasn't really getting that experience I had come for. And it was that second week in October, I was actually up at the CISA conference, which was in Yosemite. And there were several of us that were at that conference. That's the annual California Emergency Services Association conference. And it was that Sunday night going into Monday morning, I think it was October 9th, when the fires started breaking out in Northern California. And we heard about it like in the middle of the night and right away people had to start getting recalled. And I ended up getting recalled the next day because of the Canyon 2 fire that Randy mentioned that started that same week here in Southern California. So that was really my first major response here with Cal OES. And I was in the REOC, I think I was the situation unit leader. For that one, for a couple of days here in the REOC. And then I helped open the local assistance center, which was, uh, we were so glad to be able to provide those services to the families that were affected by that Canyon 2 fire. And then just uh, a few weeks later, I guess it was about a month later, my normal assignment when we're not responding. We're like liaisons to the different counties in Southern California. And there's 11 counties here in the Southern region. And I had been a backup to Ventura County. And then about three weeks before the Thomas fire started, the primary retired. So I ended up being on the night of Monday, December 4th, when the Thomas fire broke out the primary for Ventura County. So I remember I had just eaten dinner and I was sitting on my couch and I just happened to open Twitter, and I saw a tweet about a wildfire that had broken out by Thomas at Queen's College there near Santa Paula. And I thought to myself, uh-oh, I might get called. And sure enough, about 20 minutes later, my phone rang, and I had to get in the car and drive up to Ventura County that night. So that put me on the night shift rotation. I didn't get there until I think about 9.30 or 10. But I have to tell you that that, that drive in that night was very, very harrowing. Experience. It was the winds were crazy, so they were knocking my car around. And as I was going down that Conejo grade, what I saw when I came into Ventura County was. It's hard to really describe because it's a very urban area, Ventura. Even though it's not quite as urban as LA, there's all the outlets, there's all the stores. You would normally see tons and tons of lights, but it was completely dark because there was a power outage. I think it was about 120,000 customers had lost power at the start of that fire, and all you could see was the orange glow of the fire as it was growing in the mountains up in Ventura. So it was so eerily dark as I drove in, and as I got off the freeway there were so many stoplights that were not working it was like actually a pretty dangerous driving situation and you know with the winds things debris was in the roads from the winds knocking everything up and i got to the eoc and it was just a uh, pretty chaotic that first night because everybody was we we knew that there was a red flag condition, but you never really expect it to take off the way it did. And I mean, this was the largest fire that Ventura County had dealt with in a long time. I mean, it, not immediately, but it quickly became that. And the it just moved quickly. It started in Santa Paula and moved into the city. And there were people working with me there in the EOC whose homes were threatened. And a couple of them did lose their houses. So starting that night, put me on a graveyard trajectory for the rest of the week. So I, I worked uh, five graveyard shifts in a row f- at the start of the fire and, and we were activated for 17 days. So I original, or eventually got onto days, but it was an intense first night deploying up there for the Thomas fire.
1: What was the mood of most of the emergency managers that were working in the EOC during this event? either one can answer.
0: Well, that first night when I arrived there, it it was definitely intense and it was definitely kind of somber because we realized immediately that structures were going to be lost and we knew that there were potentially lives at stake. I mean, because you have to remember that this was really immediately on the heels of the the Napa and Sonoma County fires where I think about 40 people had died in those fires and they, they came in the middle of the night and people didn't have the warning. And it was really horrific. So that was, I think, immediately on everyone's mind, the importance of we need to let people know right away that they are potentially in danger because people didn't realize, you know, living in Ventura, that a fire in Santa Paula, which is what, like 20, 30 miles away might affect them. So We really felt the pressure to get the word out immediately. And we, well, Ventura County's team did an excellent job at really getting on the alerting. And they issued a wireless emergency alert for people in the area, letting them know to get out now and so many people went to shelters that that first night there were 28,000 people that were evacuated right away and that number grew over the next couple of days but immediately it was chaos for people and it was intense for the emergency managers as we were making these decisions which we knew could have a an impact on whether people lived or died in this fire quick question
1: on the shelters I mean, I know that when we've had shelter operations in the past, and you might get a hundred people and you're talking where I work, it's 3.5 million people in the county, right? So you get a fire, you might get a hundred people and it's normally during the daytime and then it kind of weans at night because I mean, face it, no one really wants to sleep at a shelter, right? So in this case, what was the average shelter population with 28,000 people being evacuated at that time? What was the shelter population?
0: Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I have volunteered for the Red Cross for a few years before this, so I'm pretty used to what the kind of typical, and like you said, people don't really want to go to the shelter, and when I was volunteering with LA, I think the most I'd ever seen in a shelter was maybe 50. That first night in Ventura, they had 200 people waiting in line to get into the Ventura County Fairgrounds, which was where they set up the shelter, and we definitely... Through the course of the fire, I think there were as many as five shelters open at once. The Ventura County Fairgrounds, Oxnard College, and then the Nordoff High School up in Ojai. And then we had to have uh, share with Santa Barbara because of the, the two counties are so close there And Santa Barbara, UCSB had opened a shelter there. And then there was also one in Santa Paula. And I the fairgrounds was always over like 150. It was close to two. I, I know it was over 200 a couple of nights. And then you had about. 40 or 50 in these other shelters as well. So gosh, I mean, like probably close to 400 maybe at some parts of this fire. It was, there were a lot of people in the shelters and the sheltering operations were overwhelmed almost immediately. I know that was something that I was dealing with on that first night was the Red Cross is just saying, we need all the help we can get. So we had actually, and that's an interesting thing as well, is because I was working on that. It was probably 2.30 in the morning and trying to see how can we get more shelter staff in there? Because they were already over overwhelmed just because there were so many people trying to get in and trying to get to the shelter. They knew that they really needed help. So we sent a request over to LA region, Red Cross, and they were getting ready to deploy a team when the fire broke out in uh, the Sunland-Tahunga area, the, the creek fire that one was. So that broke out that same night, and then they recalled their resources, and they couldn't send a team. And that was really kind of, you know, that, that crazy week in a nutshell in, in December, too. That first week in December, that was the start of it, and the sheltering piece was definitely a big concern for us and trying to make sure that they got the resources that they needed. That first night was really, really kind of chaotic though.
1: For those of you that are listening and just to really understand what this is like, there really wasn't an area in California that didn't have some sort of impact uh, by the fires. And I know there's some like really crazy uh, video out there of the guy driving up into the hills and the whole hillside's on fire. And, and so, that's just kind of painting that picture of what it was like during that period. So there's a bunch of fires going on. We had resources all over the place. And it was really hard for a lot of people to wrap their arms around uh, what was really going on. I mean, Randy was just coming back from the fires up in the Santa Rosa area and you know, coming back down from there. And so there's still resources that were up there. I actually spoke to the police chief of the Napa Valley Community College. And he was talking about how They had to close their college down for three weeks, I think it was, and they had, they they opened up as a shelter and during that process, they had 700 and some odd people go through sheltering at the Napa Valley Community College they didn't have any power. Uh, They had to go down to another city close by to be able to communicate out to their students and faculty and staff what was going on because they couldn't even run power on their campus for internet and whatnot. So just to kind of give that impact story. So Randy, so you're up in NorCal. Talk a little bit about the Santa Rosa fire and what that impact up there was.
2: Yeah, that was really interesting. I had a, initially been, uh, well, after the fires had started, I'd never worked a fire before. I'd never, I was really not, my career emergency management at this point had really been more on the planning end. We did emergency response, obviously for the nuclear part of it, but that's not anything like a, a fire. You know, a fire is a, a completely different different type of response, as I as I found out. But I was ordered to deploy up to Mendocino County, and I was driving up there. And that night, my phone rang, and it was uh, one of our deputy directors for the agency called me and said that they wanted me to come out to the SOC up in Sacramento and do a stop there. So I ended up going up there and meeting meeting a bunch of people in the the state operations center. And I was transferred over to Napa to help out with one of the regional deputy directors who were working the response for the entire Sonoma area for the fire. And we were staying in Napa at the time because there were no hotels to stay at in Santa Rosa because of all the evacuations that had occurred. So we were driving back and forth from Napa to uh, Santa Rosa for about a week. I was there. And that was really something because you could see at that point the extent of the fire where you, the fire, the burn area in Napa, and then you drive back down to Santa Rosa and you're still in the same burn area. It's just the um, the enormity of it was, was really something. But when I got to Santa Rosa I did have a opportunity to tour the the burn area and I, in Coffee Park I I had never seen anything like that and it's funny because you know I, I've tried to to get photographs of of the places I've been and when I was there I was so blown away by the extent of the devastation that it didn't even occur to me to take a picture of it of of being there but I I remember standing in the middle of that community and thinking that that it looked just like the one I live in except there were no houses it was just chimneys just this forest of chimneys as far as you could see 365 degrees and I'd never experienced anything like that before and it was really overwhelming I, I even to this this day I'm I say that I, I just can't, couldn't get my head around it, you know, that just the, the level of the destruction was the likes of which I had never seen. And that smell of that smoke that was still in the air, it's, you know, that, that's something that really stays with you. So I you know, I toured the, the Coffee Park area the Mark West Springs area, which was also equally devastated. I mean, nothing survived, nothing. There were no houses left standing in any of those areas. From there, I was deployed back up to Mendocino County to become the division supervisor up there. And Mendocino is a very small county, had never seen anything like this before. Uh, they, they did a great job. The people in Mendocino are, are, are just remarkable people. The area that got burned was up in the Redwood Valley uh, area, up this this area called Tomcat road was the the majority of it, and the devastation there was was equally horrific. You know that it's a very rural area up there, and it, once again everything was destroyed in the path of the fire. There were no no structures or very few structures left standing up there where the fire went through. There were there were none. That's where that that little boy was killed. You know, going up the the road where he was. You know, seeing the family's car still there, burn out, and just kind of reconstructing in your mind what had happened that night, and seeing. The, the canopy of the trees and how the fire would. I, I remember seeing video from a, a police car going up that same road the night of the fire, and you could you could easily see that standing there. You know, weeks later, and just how how just horrifying that had to be. You know, that was kind of how where I where I cut my teeth on this whole type of response, and you know, it was it obviously deeply uh, affects you when you see it for the first time, and you know, you might think that as responders doing this over and over that maybe eventually you get used to it. And I can tell you from coming back down to the Thomas fire, you just, you just don't, you know, each one of those homes represents a family and seeing it on one occasion, a single occasion of a home being burnt down is, is, is deeply impacting. But when you see it multiplied by hundreds of times, it's really something it's that, that impacts you deeply when you, when you really think about All those families and how just utterly devastating fire is, and what it does—it leaves nothing. It leaves nothing. It takes everything. When we went down to uh, when I did finally deploy to Ventura, it was funny because Jenny and I had had been corresponding, and the time that I was I was had been deployed up north talking, you know, business and what had been going on. So the, I think the first time I, I saw her after not being, or coming back from that deployment was in the EOC in Ventura. And uh, when I got deployed up there and we took a tour, a drive of the burn area, and it was still closed to the public. The homeowners hadn't even had an opportunity to go up there yet. And we went to go survey the damage up there. And uh, once again, it was just incredible, the level of destruction that had occurred equally incredible was the lack of the loss of life that the people were so good at listening to the evacuation orders and that the messaging that was delivered that night was so spot on by the county of Ventura that they got everybody out of there and it's just when you go up to that area and I'm sure Jenny agrees with me that how nobody was killed in that that fire was was just an absolute miracle I remember talking to a uh, Ventura County Sheriff who was in Santa Paula, when the fire started getting out of control, they realized that it was moving west and that they needed to start getting evacuations going. And he said he was driving down Foothill Foothill Road towards Ventura and looking out the side of his car, going full code three, hauling down the road. And he, could, he was saying he looked out the side of his car and the fire was keeping up with him as he was moving. So if that gives you any kind of visual of how just intense that fire was and how fast it did what it did. It the destruction, the main part of the destruction it did in venture, it did in something like twelve hours. Mm-hmm. I mean it was it was just an incredible fire the way that it, it moved and operated. And it was it was really, you know, something to see. Once again, it's not something you ever get used to. All right, let's take a
1: quick break here. Um let's hear a word from our sponsors. And then when we come back, I want to talk to you guys about the messaging and I really want to get a little controversial area here, obviously with the whole Montecito thing. And, and uh, let's talk about that when we get back.
2: Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high tech, yet simple to use, mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. The modern emergency manager wears a lot of hats, so how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It is a matter of time. And how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. We offer pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations, and more, all coming from the archives of the Blue Cell.
0: Get a jump start on the exercise process and visit us today at www.ttxvault.com.
1: Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com. Hey, welcome back from that quick break, and thank you all for uh, uh, listening to our sponsors. And it, when you guys reach out to them, let them know that uh, you heard them here on Ian Weekly because we can't bring you uh, this type of quality uh, uh, podcast without those without the support of our sponsors. So uh, again, thank you so much for uh, for listening, and let's get back. So before we went on break, we I wanted to ask the question regarding the. Idea of messaging, and then also what happens when people get kind of, for lack of a better term, burnt out well, no pun intended uh, from from evacuating in Montecito. So,
2: well, I can say that uh, you know, emergency messaging is a continuum, it doesn't just occur at the beginning or in specific parts of a disaster, it's something that goes through the entire process, from response into recovery and throughout that entire process. And the Probably the biggest issue with with emergency messaging particularly is the continuity of message and that consistency of message. That's probably the greatest challenge that emergency management agencies have is making sure that everybody's hearing the same thing. You know, what happened in Ventura, and I wasn't there, maybe Jenny can speak to this more, was the night of the fire was the way that message was crafted and how it was sent out and the time that it took to get that message out was critical to you know getting people to to move and to get out of that those dangerous areas and the the county did an excellent job in that maybe Jenny can speak a little more to how that message was crafted and how that happened
0: yeah so in Ventura County, they have very specific protocols and they have trained pretty extensively to make sure that their staff are able and feel comfortable to send uh, these emergency messages, both through the wireless emergency alert system, which is like the Amber alerts that you get on your phone, and their own opt-in system, which they use a program called Everbridge to send those notifications out. And the night of the fire, I mean, they hadn't actually, even though Ventura County has had the capability capability of sending the wireless emergency alert, which goes to all cell phones in the area that's targeted for since the beginning, since the inception of the program. So I think several years, five or six years, maybe since that program's been around, they had not ever pulled the trigger on it and used it yet. But that night, they knew that this was the time they did not want to be, you know, you overusing that because there is people can just turn that off if they feel like it's annoying, and it's not going to be useful. So they're very careful about when to use it. And they knew that that night with the Thomas fire, that was the time to use it. And It was sent. It looks like 11:21 p.m. and the alert on the wireless emergency alert said, "Fast-moving brush fire between Santa Paula, Ventura, Ojai. Go to readyventuracounty.org, which is where we were keeping all of the information about the wildfire. So that gave people a notice that the fire was moving quickly and what." kind of general area it was moving in because it was going so fast. It wasn't very specific area because it was moving on all fronts and where they could go for more information. So their philosophy is always that they want to make sure the messaging gets out at a time that, you know, it, that it's it's urgent. So they want to not be sending messages like 24 hours in advance that we want you to evacuate tomorrow. They want to be sending messages out right when you need to go. And that's reflected in their um, policies for the flooding, flash flooding that might occur after the fire. Now that's something that they've worked out. They're only going to send these alerts when they've determined that people need to get out and they need to do that now. So they sent that alert that night and they always want to make it Actionable too. You, you don't want to make it vague, which I think is can be a problem in, in sometimes different agencies using these alerts. Um, Randy and I both came from higher ed, and that's a really critical part of working in higher ed emergency management is the notification. And you don't want to just send something to everybody where you're not specific about what they should do, because then you're just going to create this sense of, oh my, oh my gosh, you know, something's happening, but what do I do? So, you know, having some direction of, you know, evacuate now or this website will give you more information, although it can be hard when you have so many users on a website at once. I think we did have some issues with the website crashing. And then they also had sent another alert. It was two nights later on Wednesday when the fire was really encroaching on all sides of the Ojai Valley and the entire Ojai Valley was evacuated that night with the exception of a shelter, which was sort of debatable because we still had one shelter active in there, but the whole Ojai Valley was evacuated. So the messaging was very, very critical. And I think there's definitely some differences in philosophy between what Ventura does and what Santa Barbara did in advance of Montecito, um, because they had actually notified people a full day in advance. And I think that it may have created just a lack of urgency for some people in that evacuation, but hard to say for sure.
2: Yeah, you can always look back and hindsight is always 2020. But You know, you you mentioned earlier, Todd, about that evacuation fatigue as well, and that Santa Barbara and, rightly so, the Montecito area, included also Carpinteria and Santa Barbara proper, had been undergone an evacuation. Many people had been away from their homes and evacuated from those areas due to the fires for, you know, in some cases weeks. So, yeah, there is that. Issue of evacuation or, or, or messaging burnout that occurs. You know, we experienced that experience that in Orange County from the the Santiago fire, the Santiago Canyon fire, several years ago. That the there was a definite issue with debris flows, a threat of debris flows in that area, and the county learned that they really had to be very careful about when storms are coming, how to issue those evacuation notices, because people would get burned out and and eventually, you know, it's that cry wolf thing, and that's such a hard thing for emergency management agencies to to get a handle on and it's, it's threading a needle you know i of when do you pull the the trigger what's the right time to pull the trigger on an evacuation and it's really a difficult thing to do you know and also you know, the, the, the differences between the voluntary evacuations and the mandatory evacuations and how you craft that message and, and create the urgency of what it is that you want people to do in those areas and making sure that, that people get that message. As even in the, the mandatory evacuation areas in, in Montecito area and all of Santa Barbara, you know, they only had like a, like a 10 or 12 percent compliance rate with that. So even people who were in areas that ended up getting impacted, many people didn't leave their homes just because of that evacuation fatigue. And the question and the challenge and what we really have to work on and figure out is how do you get around that? You know, what could have the the county of Santa Barbara done differently? And there's there's no good answer for that. And, you know, sometimes it's just people have to understand what the risks are. And I think that Part of what we're discovering in the Venture area, you know, specifically with those, the geology that's there is they have uh, mudslide or mudflow issues, debris flow issues on a good year when there is no fire. But now that there's been this fire and all this denusion of the, of the hillsides, you know, obviously they're looking at that a lot more carefully and they're really starting to tweak those messages and those trigger points of when those messages go and where those messages go and which areas end up getting evacuation orders in which you don't and that's a really tough gig to, to, to pull off but it's you know situations like this and unfortunately you know the lear- lessons are going to be learned from the Montecito incident that are going to you know craft those messages later on and unfortunately we just have to continue to go through these disasters and these evacuations and, and try to learn what works and what doesn't there's no way to do that and you know th- you can you can second guess people or, or, or question what emergency managers do, but the fact of the matter is, until you're in that position where you have to do that and where people's lives are at, at in your hands, do your your evacuation orders, and until you've actually pulled the trigger on that, you you just don't know what's going to happen or how it's going to work out. So you know, moving forward, you know, it's not a matter of pointing fingers and saying, you know, you had to do this, or you should have done this, or you should have done that. It's saying... Moving forward, how do we use what occurred to make the system better in the future? And what lessons can we learn to ensure that, that this won't happen again? I mean, mud flows, fires, all that, they're going to continue. There's, you know, this isn't the end of, of this, this cycle of disasters in California. They're going to continue. So we have to take those lessons and we have to apply them to uh, disasters down the road.
0: And, I'd like to add that it's so tricky because you just never really know when these things are going to pan out, particularly with a weather incident like this. There was sort of a sense, I can say, in the days beforehand that perhaps we are overreacting to this little winter storm. This is just a small rainstorm that's happening. And of course, the fire had just occurred. So people were kind of spun up, people were worried. And I think a lot of us thought that we might have been, you know, overreacting. And that was certainly the sense in Ventura that night. I was once again, in there for a graveyard shift, and we had absolutely nothing going on. We were all just in there, like watching the radar and not seeing like any of the precipitation. And we did see it headed towards Santa Barbara. But I can tell you, when I left my shift at, I think it was 6am, we didn't think there were any impacts. We had heard that Santa Barbara got a little bit of mud, but I had no idea. It wasn't until I woke up several hours later that anything had happened. And I think it's just really hard to know when something's going to turn into an actual incident. And when you want to worry about whether or not you're calling a Wolf by sending out these notifications. So it's just, it's going to be something where we have to continue to refine that in this field.
2: A very interesting point as well about how the magnitude of the incident, you know, unfolds. You know, when I came into the EOC, right, when when Jenny was was going off shift, I was coming on shift. And at that point, we were all, oh, I guess we dodged a bullet, you know, nothing happened, everything's good. And then... Oh, there's a little bit of mud on the 101 and oh there's a fire up in the hills. And then, you know, how the the magnitude of that event started to unspool that day, that morning was really pretty amazing because you go from being like, wow, we we got out of that. It's a business as usual, and then you start hearing about some houses got knocked off of their foundations and you know, there's mud on the freeway, and then the first body gets popped up and it starts going from there, but the, when you really realize the magnitude of what had happened. It, it was, it was really, you know, a kick in the head because, you know, when you go from thinking that everything's okay to not, I talked to one of my colleagues in Cal OES was, you know, once the magnitude of the the disaster in Menaceo came, you know, full scale, they were uh, pulling assets. So my, my counterpart who was in Ventura, was assigned with me in Ventura, was pulled up there to Santa Barbara and he had been doing this. It with Cal OES, you know, mostly fires because that's really the Cal OES wheelhouse. So we don't deal with debris flows very often, but there's a veteran emergency manager. And when he called me on the phone a couple of days later, his voice was quivering with uh, the emotion of what he'd seen talking about these boulders, the size of freight trains doing 80 miles an hour down the hills and just going through everything that they encountered without pausing. And, you know, when he describes that this, the level of what occurred, and that's how this, the magnitude of it came to me. It was in these little chunks of just like, wow, that was bad. Oh, wow, that was bad. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse when you hear the story about what everybody went through up there. It was just really incredible.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that Randy and I had actually talked about when we were realizing the magnitude of this and all these were coming in that it was almost like a very localized Catastrophic earthquake, one of those things that you plan for, but you know, you h- seldom in this field get to kind of deal with all of those impacts. So they had major debris impacts. They had a huge lifeline. The 101 was closed for like almost two weeks, I think. And then they had the issue of mass fatalities. And that's what it was. They had to bring in cadaver dogs and refrigeration trucks from Northern California. And there were 21 confirmed fatalities and there still are two missing, which are presumed to also be fatalities. But just all of those impacts that, that you pretty much only can, can when you're designing like a um, an exercise, for example, usually use a scenario like the catastrophic earthquake, because you'll see a lot of those same impacts. But really, like this incident had those impacts that you you seldom see all of that together in one incident. And this really it was of that scale, even though it was small in comparison to what the catastrophic earthquake will do in Southern California, it, it really gave the opportunity to see how that was going to play out. It's been a crazy year already, and it's only one month in.
2: Yeah, and this, I should say, on the the Malasito, it is still, you know, that it is still a disaster. They are still fully engaged in the recovery efforts. They're really almost still in response mode there. There are private properties that are still covered in mud and debris. But, you know, when you talk about the response going into there the next day, I mean, hearing the stories that have come out, you know, about uh, rescuers who had to use poles as they walked around these properties because the mud had covered swimming pools and they had to probe for where those were because if they stepped on top of them, they were going to go right through and, and sink. So the danger that, you know, of those events, I certainly didn't. Ever really consider the magnitude of a debris flow event, or what it would be? I'd, fi- I always, always, you see the, the, the videos of some mud coming down the street, or you know, sort of looking like a flood. To understand really the magnitude of what one of those events can do, and the destructive power of something like that, is is really eye opening as an emergency management professional.
0: And the impacts that it had in the utilities, that was another thing that really struck me right away was it took out the water pipe that was feeding that whole area. So immediately you have that impact where where people are going to get drinking water. And that was something that they had to immediately put in place was a water distribution plan. And I know that gas and electric were disturbed for a, a couple of weeks. I think they only just recently, this past week, restored gas service in the area. So it's been one of those disaster zones and it still is. We still have several staff up there and their their EOC has been activated almost nonstop in Santa Barbara for almost two months now, yeah, I think. Yeah.
2: And it's every one of their reservoirs was impacted by the fire mm-hmm. to begin with. So they were still in the process of, of dealing with that. Now the major issue is the debris basins. Are every debris f- basin that's, that's in that region is, is full of debris and they've been making the, this Herculean effort to get equipment and crews up there to clear those out. And that in turn impacts the recovery efforts in Ventura because we're in the process Process now of doing the b- private property debris removal to get the burn uh, debris off of properties, which is a hazardous material. So it's there's a, cr- a criticality to that as well. I mean, there's a the the Hawaiian village apartment complex that burnt down in Ventura is a massive debris field and the state is, as as issued permission to, to enter them into the debris uh, removal program as well, just because it sits on top of a hill. There's homes that haven't burned all around it. So there's all the possibility of all this debris coming from that site, which is all hazardous burn debris. But getting the crews, our initial effort to get crews to enact this massive debris removal operation that we had planned and set up prior to the Montecito incident really kind of got off the rails a little bit because now all those crews that we were counting on being in the region to do that work were being remobilized up to the Montecito area to deal with this debris basin issue. Because those debris basins were critical. The fact that they had been cleared out prior to this storm happening and that the county of Santa Barbara had been and so on top of that, saved thousands of lives. Had those debris basins not been cleared out, thousands of people would have been killed. There's, I have absolutely no doubt about that.
0: One other effect of this disaster that sort of highlights and underscores the interconnectedness of the region between Santa Barbara and Ventura is with the freeway being closed, so many of the people that work in Santa Barbara live in Ventura because the cost of living is cheaper in Ventura. So you immediately lost a lot of your your workforce. So if you think about police, firefighters, ambulance staff, they were coming off their 12-hour shifts and their backups, their relief were not there because they couldn't get there. It was five hours to drive around. If, if you were going to try to get up there through another route because 101 is really the only route. So what was really interesting to see is because that's something that you don't think about as much. I mean, when you have so many other issues, the water, the mass fatalities, the debris, staffing is a huge issue that that a lot of people don't plan or exercise for enough, I think. Um, And in this scenario, we really saw that play out. And one of the things that was really cool to see come together was voluntary agencies in Ventura kind of stepping up to the plate to try to get resources together. And there's actually a group that had reached out to private pilots in Ventura to see if they could help out. And it ended up being that they were able to fly critical staff up into Santa Barbara and just private pilots that volunteered to do that. And I think that it's really, for me, so fascinating and and heartwarming to see when a community comes together like that to be so resourceful and um, think of creative solutions to help one another. And, th- and that whole region, just they're very connected to one another economically, geographically, and geologically. So it's been a wild ride.
1: Yeah. Santa Barbara is one of those places where you can't get there from here right you know if, if so, one or two of the I mean you can go with the 101 for a little bit but I mean yeah you really can't get there from here and so having the 101 cut off just really cut that entire city off from all support not just from emergency managers and, and emergency workers but uh, again there was no supply trucks coming in there I know that some of the grocery stores and stuff started running out of uh, out of food and water uh, for the people that lived in Santa Barbara so again this is like one of those things that the whole lifeline was cut off off from that
2: Yeah. And you think about that, you know, they also had this, this Herculean task of removing all that mud from not only the 101, but from all the roads in that area. And the amount of equipment that they had to get in there to do that was an incredible operation. And a lot of that equipment was down in the Southern California area, which would have normally used the 101 as a route to get up there. So moving that equipment into that area that was, you know, cut off was really an incredible challenge and required some real. Innovation and Jenny made a really good point just a second ago about exercising and how important you know, exercising those kind of events are. I think we get as we exercise for disasters, these we get a little generic on how we exercise and the scenarios that we use or that we exercise about, and what a great. You know, scenario for an exercise is that a major route is cut off. How do you bring resources into your area? Because that was the challenges that they had to do. Not only with the the airplanes that they were using, but you know, the impromptu ferry services were were coming up. Amtrak ended up adding something like two or three extra trains to go between Ventura and Santa Barbara just to bring those critical staff, you know, into and out of the area because the 101 was was not. Accessible at all. That created a major challenge. So, you know, moving forward, I would, I would say to any jurisdiction, that transportation piece of an exercise is a really important thing to think about when you're planning those exercises and adding that into it.
1: I had an interview with one of our sponsors, the Blue Cell, and we talked about exercises and training and I mentioned the fact that a lot of times when we develop exercises as emergency managers going into for our jurisdictions, we tend not to give too many challenges. I think because we're afraid to fail, quote unquote, in the in the exercise. And I think we do a disservice to ourselves at times that we don't challenge the EOC staff about these type of things. And and I think you're right, Randy, that we need to really pick up our pace on what type of exercises that we do across the board. The other thing too, is that we always exercise up to where the event occurs, and then when we respond and then all of a sudden we go, okay, exercise is over and the world is better. And we really don't exercise recovery a lot. And I think we should do more work on, on exercising recovery than just response. I think we do response really well, you know, for the most part, I think it's the recovery portion of it that we really need to, to practice a little bit more. Do you guys disagree or agree with that?
2: I agree with you hundred percent. That's, you know, the, the response part is really a minor part of the entire, the entire event you know, I mean, obviously it's a very important part and it's when you're talking about exercises, that's where the action is. It makes an exercise kind of interesting, but the bigger piece is the, is the recovery piece and understanding Everything that occurs, I kind of joke about it. But thinking that you know, I was never really that interested in, in recovery. I was always interested in response and, and operations. So I would I would take those trainings whenever recovery would be part of those trainings. I would kind of space out and be like, "Ah, that's nothing I'm ever going to do." But it turns out, you know, in, in both these fires that I've 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 been on, that. I was thrust into that recovery role and had to really learn what the steps were. And it is, it's a process that happens there. It's something that there's so many moving parts that come into it based on what emergency declarations you get and at what level does the feds come in and de- declare a major emergency or, you know, how is that working and how long does that take and what do you do to move up to that process and how do you get ahead of that? We had that issue in Ventura County where we had a state proclamation for the emergency that we were working off of. We were waiting for the federal declaration to come, which wasn't, was never, you know, super timely. There's so many things that go into that. So how do we get ahead of that? The vent and the issue with Ventura. Definitely more so the Northern California fires is, you know, I got to give credit to the, the county of Ventura that they were so on top of how to get ahead of this disaster. They did such a great job in their, you know, immediate planning for this that they really got ahead of it. You know, part of the recovery effort is the debris removal program that I kind of talked about earlier. It's a huge program. First of all, the it's, it's a Herculean effort. You need massive resources to, to do that. There's a huge planning p- piece that goes to that, but it's also extremely important because all that debris is hazardous material and it has to be dealt with. You know, on top of the actual burn debris, we have the issue of household hazardous waste. So, um, usually, part of this process is to bring in DTSC or the EPA to come in and sort of do we call it a phase one cleanup where they go through and they remove all that household hazardous material in Ventura. That process started nine days after the fire started. Uh, the fire was still burning when DTSC was going into the city and the county of Ventura to start that phase one process. Nine days. That was the, as fast as it has ever happened in the state of California. So we that process was moving Really fast while the wheels of the declaration process was moving at its normal speed, which is glacial. <laughs> so the state was really forced to confront how do we get ahead of this? Once this phase one process is going, we have to f- follow it up with this phase two process. And a state made a decision that they were going to fund the phase two process regardless of the federal declaration, whether or not that FEMA money was going to come in to help support that process. So they had to make that decision to keep ahead of the uh, the momentum that was already rolling on this disaster. And I think as we do this, unfortunately, this isn't going to be the last time we do this, but as, as we continue to do this, that momentum is going to be picking up a lot faster as we do this. And I think unfortunately, you know. fortunately, unfortunately, we're going to become better at this as we go. So that's a big, big consideration.
0: Yeah. And another thing that Ventura did really well to get in front of the recovery for this was they immediately established a recovery task force, a unified group with people from all over the county, as well as the city. And they had um, five, um, I guess that's five, subgroups or task forces, one for housing, one for debris, one for health, one for finance and one for watershed. So those are the main areas where they thought we're going to have to consider You know how we're moving forward in each of these arenas and bring all the right players together. And they set up regular meetings and they had this group convening and it still is convening and probably will be for months to come because these are all the major things to think about. And I think a lot of jurisdictions, Um, We have our EOC structures. We know, you know, what we're going to do in response. But do you know who you're going to pull into your recovery team? I think that's something really that a lot of places should look at and have a plan for so that when a disaster of this scope does occur, you can really launch into that and not not lose any time. And
2: that's something you can totally get ahead of in your planning process, where you can pre-identify those basic task forces that you know you're going to need. You know, like, like Jenny said, uh, really, uh, you know, in, in the planning process that I've been associated with, it's always the operational part of it. But the recovery piece, like you said, Todd, is we don't consider that enough when we're doing our planning process. We plan for the disaster, but what comes next? And this task force issue is something that you can easily plan for. Uh, you can easily assign leadership to way in advance of the disaster. I mean, even in Ventura, it was something they had to come up with on the fly. And they, Kevin McGowan, the emergency manager of Ventura, is one of the best in the business. And he was on top of this immediately. But even then, it is something that could have been worked out way beforehand. And we, all jurisdictions and emergency managers all across the spectrum, need to take the lesson from this and identify those task forces Mm -hmm. and identify the people that are going to lead those task forces because getting them stood up During the operational phase of the disaster and having that recovery framework in place immediately is so crucial to how that recovery is going to pan out the rest of it, whether it's going to be smooth or or, or bumpy. And in the case of Ventura, them getting on it right away, it 100% set the stage for the entire recovery. And that is why things are moving as fast as they are in Ventura and why that community is going to recover in in a really good way.
1: All right. Well, we're coming uh, close here to the end of, the, of our time together. I want to give you guys your, the rest of your day back. And we could talk about this forever, for sure. Uh, and it's really interesting, and you guys are really great, giving some really great perspective to the recovery aspects of the Thomas fire and, and to the uh, Santa Rosa fires and to the response as well. So is there anything else that you want to add, uh, and two oh, two questions? Let me rephrase. One is, is how, if somebody wanted to talk to you guys about this, um, how could they get in touch with you?
0: Well, this is Jenny. Um, you can just send me an email. I'm uh, Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y dot Novak, N-O-V-A-K at Cal, C-A-L-O-E-S dot C-A dot gov. So that's Jenny Novak at CalOES And I'm happy to continue to have this dialogue with anyone that's interested in learning about the Thomas fire and, and the ongoing recovery. Yeah,
2: me as well. I'm Randy.Steiner at caloes.gov, R-A-N-D-Y dot S-T-Y-N-E-R at caloes.ca.gov. And as well, I am happy to discuss it with anybody who would like to.
1: And of course, if you guys don't have your uh, pencil ready for taking down those uh, email addresses, I'll have those on our links uh, to the in the show notes. And uh, I'll tell you, both Jenny and Randy, they are awesome in the merchant manager field. Uh, if you guys have any other questions as well, I'm sure they'd be happy to talk to you all about that. So, okay, now here comes the toughest question. And I don't know who wants to take it or if you guys both have one. Okay. What book or books... Or publications? Do you recommend to somebody in the emergency management field in response and/or
2: leadership and/or recovery? I can take the first stab at that. One of my favorite books that I've read recently is called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. It is an outstanding book that talks about. He is a, a former Navy SEAL, and it talks about the the management process of how the SEALs and really how the military views leadership. And the basis of it is that when a team succeeds, it's because the team did its job. But when a team fails, it's a failure of leadership. And the way that book is written and how it expresses that and and illustrates that is just an outstanding uh, method of of leadership in general. So I recommend that book.
0: So I've actually spent the last year doing a lot of reading. That is uh, something that I'm happy to answer. And one of the, the books that I just read is called Displaced. And it talks about the Hurricane Katrina diaspora and how people were moved all across the country following that hurricane. So that's a really good one. That one's edited by Lori Peake, who's the director of the Natural Hazard Center right now. Just last fall, I read one called The Fire Outside My window, which was written by a journalist and um, survivor of the Cedar Fire, which I had no idea I would be involved in the, the new largest fire in California history when I read that book, but it gave a really great perspective about how all the agencies work together during that wildfire response because the Cedar Fire was previously the largest, the 2003 in San Diego. Those two books, I think, are really great. If you're looking for a little bit more academic, I also really liked A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit, and that um, sort of talks about how communities come together in disasters more so than being divided. So, any of those are really great recommendations I have. Uh, I enjoyed all those books.
1: So, before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to say to the emergency managers and students of emergency management that are listening to this podcast?
2: I'll just continue to learn. Just look at these disasters as they occur. There's always something to be learned from any of these incidents, and there's always something that can be gleaned from them. So, look at them, find out what went well, what went wrong, and apply them to your planning process.
0: And I would just say that this is a really exciting time to be in this field, and I hope that you are considering a career in emergency management. It is a growing field, and I think you're already on the right track listening to this podcast. I recommend you know trying to read about emergency management. The IAEM Bulletin is a great source, Emergency Management Magazine. Just try to kind of keep your pulse on what's happening in the emergency management world and, and look for local resources, look toward your professional organization the California Emergency Services Association or other state associations and the International Association of Emergency Managers, all great resources to keep you dialed in to the latest developments. Well, Jenny and Randy, thank you so
1: much for spending your day with me today. And it was really great talking to y'all. I can't wait to do this again sometime. So uh, thank you very much.
2: Thanks, Dad. Thank you.